Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- 451-4220. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. GreatNorthernElectric.com Serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. your host with the most, Tiny Tim. Cheers. I'm fired up for this. We've been messaging on this since June, so I've been looking forward. All right, all right. What's cracking, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today, my guest is Greg Nance. What's going on, Greg? Hey, Merry Christmas. Thank you. I appreciate it. Happy holidays to you. Um, what's your plan for the new year? plan for the new year Get a little is closer lots of there. family time. Nice. Lots of family time, some relaxing, some hitting the trails, a, little, a couple jogs too. A couple jogs. What is a jog to you? The one I'm looking forward to most in the new year is a January 1st run. Um, I'm going to try to run from the Bainbridge uh, Ferry Terminal onto the Bremerton Ferry Terminal. Wow. So it, for you out there listening, Greg is a a man of many talents. One of them is ultra marathon running. Um, I would love to tell your story to Bainbridge Islanders, Kitsap County, Seattle, and all of Washington. Um, I got wind of you. You grew up on Bainbridge Island. I got wind of you from my son, Vincenzo, at his school, Sakai Intermediate Middle School. You came to talk to the masses, mm-hmm. which are all the chitlins. And uh, he came home very inspired and full energy and 
told me your whole backstory, and then I reached out to you and didn't know that you were such a jet setter and you got to go, go, go. So a little bit about my background. I'm a dog walker during the day, and I always had that urge to keep moving. Mm. My son in school, constantly teachers are like, he doesn't sit still. Mm-hmm. Did you have that trait where you got to go, go, go? I had to go, go, go. Absolutely. I, I couldn't sit still as a student. Uh, you know, I was a little boy growing up. And so teachers would basically send me outside. Hey, like, let's go play some games, go run laps around the field. So always too much energy since I was born. How do you feel about PE and stuff like that getting and the arts getting removed from the academic circles? Oh, no good. Because yeah, PE kept me sane and recess was critical to just stretching the legs out. And I was a creative little guy too. So I enjoyed art as well. Yeah. Awesome. You weren't always a runner, right? You, you played a lot of sports. Play a lot of sports. I I was always the kid smiling when the coach was making us run like wind sprints, and mm-hmm. so while everyone is you know being punished by this, I had the big smile. So um, I, I always kind of enjoyed it. But yeah, I loved baseball, basketball, tennis, soccer, football growing up. So uh, like to play anything and everything. Are you competitive? Very competitive. Yeah. Board games. Little so less uh, with my brother for sure. Anything. I'm competitive with my brother on, but uh, I can definitely play some casual checkers or connect four without being too competitive. (laughs) (laughs) Did I hear this right, that you even tried boxing a little bit? That's right. Yeah, I boxed for uh, for Cambridge when I was in business school. So after high school? After high school, yeah. So an adult with a sound mind decided to get punched in the face. That's right. Yeah, questionable decision, but I I really loved it. It's It's very technical, right? Very technical, and there's a few things you can do to really protect yourself. So your hands are always up. Yeah, not fight. (laughs) Throw in the towel before it begins. Plus, you got the flight ability. Hey, that's right. I could have just jogged off, but I did enjoy it. Did that start with um, beating up on your brother at all? It, it did actually. Yeah, age six, seven, uh, lots of fights with the brother. Usually after a game of basketball gone awry. And uh, <laughs> why is basketball the one game that makes everybody fight? Because <laughs> I remember in high school and college, and no, in sixth grade even. Jeff Decker, shout out to you. You punched me in the face after a rebound. <laughs> there were so many fights on the basketball court. It, there's something about it. Little boy testosterone, and yeah, I. Uh, had had enough of my brother's smack talk. I think he beat me in this one. And we ended up kind of throwing some throwing some fists. And mom and dad were very not okay with that. So they ended up getting us a punching bag and boxing gloves. Hmm. And the rule was, hey, when you get frustrated and angry, those are normal feelings, but you can't hit each other. You've got to hit the bag instead. Um, didn't always follow that rule, but it, it did help. Um, mm-hmm. And within a few months, as you might predict, we were actually just having little boxing matches with each other with the boxing gloves. So we... Uh, we're still misbehaving little guys, but at least more of the energy was going to the bag instead of my brother's face. Right, right. Let's talk about your family and your upbringing here on Bainbridge Island. Pretty close to your family? Very close. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I heard a story that your your dad was a beer vendor for the Seahawks, and I was wondering if he or you knew Bill the Beer Man or, or Jimmy the Peanut Man Wow. back in the days. I'm not – so I don't know either. Uh, I'd have to ask my dad. Yeah, dad was a – uh, beer vendor during the 1983-1984 Seahawks seasons was doing that to supplement his you know income before starting to build a family and um, some really fun stories but I haven't heard of these two guys yet okay they're icons are they sweet yeah definitely from the kingdom days because I, I was 10 when the Seahawks came to town and uh, went to the first season it was so much different in the kingdom I mean Steve Largent and Jim Zorn are 
carpooling in a V-Dub bug, mm-hmm. you know, and they park in the parking lot, which was free back then. Parking oh. was free, not $75 a game like wow. it is now. And they would just walk out of their car into the stadium just like everybody else. And wow. Concrete jungle back then. and I watched right. a lot of Mariner games growing up in the kingdom, and yeah, it's, it was a different feeling altogether. And I can only imagine 1976 and the, the first pioneering days of the Seahawks. Yeah, there was never that uh, pump in the music you know, get up on your feet and clap type thing. It was build a beer, man, screaming, Seahawks. <laughs> and then the wave started in the kingdom where you stand wow. up, put the arms up. Yeah. That, that all started out of the, the vendors. That's amazing. Wow. And uh, Jimmy, the peanut guy, he used to wing those behind his back, you know, 40 yards easy. Wow. Yeah. Had a tennis ball with a little slot for the coins and you throw it back. And it was, he was at the Mariner games as well. Wow. Yeah. it's awesome. Anyway, enough about that. What, Kind of. So you were were you born and raised on Bainbridge? I was born in Redmond. Spent my first three months on Finney Ridge in Seattle, and then uh, the folks moved over January 1989 to Bainbridge, and um, yeah, we've been there since. So, so you've been here since I've been out of college. Wow, a little while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, talk about um, a little bit of the difficulties growing up on the island for a kid from a kid's perspective. Uh-huh. It um so number one thing I'd say is you don't realize how fortunate you are or how lucky you are to be here in this community because um, it is overwhelmingly supportive and encouraging and there's so many different resources that um, you have at your fingertips that you take for granted supportive coaches great teachers and a very welcoming open embracing kind of community so you don't see that growing up you, instead you see this feels claustrophobic. Like I know everyone, everyone knows me. The kind of like the grapevine in the town is like very, um, you know, th- there's a lot of like sort of whispers and uh, everyone seems to know everyone. And that is like a, uh, you know, a teenager can feel like very restrictive, I think, in a, in a lot of senses. And so yeah, you call it dismissively the rock and you're looking forward to getting out into the world. I was really, really lucky um, you know, we have family in the deep south. So, like, my parents are both born and raised in Mississippi. We've got lots of family down there. So, you know, I would do at least two or three weeks each summer down in Mississippi, traveling in the south, visiting with oh. family. And then with baseball, which I loved, I started traveling around the state, you know, 13, 14 years old. Um, so, start seeing more than just, you know, little Bainbridge. And then as a um, high school debater, I started traveling even more and with a ton of support from BHS. Um, I got to like literally go to California, to Kentucky, New York, Florida, Texas to go represent the Spartans uh, like as a, at debate tournaments. And that was just really, really cool because you start seeing all these different places. You meet people from very, very different parts of the country, parts of the state. And very quickly you realize, wow, like when I describe Bainbridge Island, people are like blown away by like the magic of this like island in the sea. And like it just sounds so amazing. And there's forests and trees in the sea. and and only then do you realize, well, like, I'm actually really fortunate. And yes. this is such a carefree, kind of idyllic way to grow up that most people can't even dream of. Um, and, you know, it's thanks to, you know, my parents worked really, really hard in order to save up, try to, you know, buy a house while it was still somewhat affordable. And um, a lot of gratitude from that growing up that you don't have when you're 17 trying to get off the rock. Mm-hmm. And that's the same. That's what I, I kind of get is – Kids don't know how well they have it, and mm. some of them suffer from boredom. Yeah, um, with all these natural resources out there and things to do outside, you know, we still battle with the Xbox and the screens and <laughs> all that stuff. But it's a different time too. It's like 
we're not watching Little House on the Prairie or reading newspapers either, you know. So it's give and take a little bit. But it's amazing how many people go off to college, start a family, and then be like, hey, I'd love to raise my kid back on the rock. Absolutely. And my sister, who's class of uh, 2003, she she went off uh, to college, traveled quite a bit, law school, meets and uh, marries her best friend in law school they are now back on the island on crystal springs raising their two daughters together so like it's um i've seen that play out and it's wonderful and it's so much fun seeing her perspective now as a young parent on the island it's um you know there's so much to be grateful for here and it um again you're right you you only realize that kind of coming back with years of perspective yeah i'm i feel very fortunate to be here on this island and the longer i do this podcast the more interesting people I come across like yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, um, quite a plethora of, um, successful, interesting, laid back, cool cats on this Island. Hey, um, I, I read a quote that you learned a lot from sitting around the dinner table with your family. Can you pontificate on that a little bit? Because I think the days of sitting around the table have become somewhat numbered because of mm. just like all the information that's thrown out uh, at us so much, you know, there's so much to accomplish in a day. I mean, my, my son's education is already accelerated way past what I was learning at his age. Mm. And then with the travel of soccer and his nutrition and, and his studying and stuff like that, it's a very, very full day for him. It's, it's much more than the eight hour work day that people go into the city to accomplish mm. for a kid. Um, what kind of conversations did you guys have around the table and how important was that in shaping, shaping you? Yeah, we, um, all of us, you might not be able to tell looking at me, but all of us love to eat. Um, and so yeah, dinner was a nice time to, uh, get together usually after, you know, a baseball or basketball or football practice. So each of us, you know, my brother and I would be, uh, good and tired, just kind of chowing down. But it would always be really interesting hearing mom and dad describe kind of like you know, what they're up to, their work and challenges they're facing. So my mom, she supervises nursing homes for the state of Washington to make sure they're given quality care to elders. And it's an example of a small, dedicated team doing a lot with a little. Um, like, you know, they're very, very underfunded for how large the mandate is. And yet they're very, very resourceful, very dedicated, very passionate. And you hear stories of, you know, how she's addressing and approaching all this. And you start to realize, hey, like, you know, energy and enthusiasm are critical to solving any problem. Working with really dedicated, passionate people, that's vital. You got to have a mission that you really, really believe in that helps you push through kind of difficult times and the feeling of sometimes almost hopelessness where it's like, oh, like we're not yet doing as we could do. And so I kind of like ambition around solving those problems. My dad was a um, longtime public defender and then criminal defense attorney. And I always loved hearing about the clients he was representing, many of whom didn't get, you know, they had none of the opportunities that I had growing up. There are people that were kind of on the outside of you know, on the wrong side of the tracks on the outside of the law from like a young age. And basically they've made a series of regrettable decisions oftentimes. And occasionally there's a, a prosecutor who's trying to really like make an example of someone. And one of your constitutional rights is you have the, uh, the right to legal representation when you're charged with a crime. And uh, learning about my dad's kind of love of the constitution and my dad's um, call to service to make sure that 
people are given proper legal representation, even at their lowest moment after, you know, maybe the worst mistake they've ever made. That was really, um, um, that felt really compelling to me in the sense that um, find something that you really, really believe in, even when it's not popular, um, really support people, even that are kind of uh, been cast aside by society, like real true underdogs that have been um, in a really, really tough place. And just hearing kind of my parents describe what they were up to, We'd, you know, we'd ask questions because we were curious and we're interested that um, I didn't realize it, you know, in those years, but that was helping me kind of formulate my own kind of ethical compass. That was helping me formulate my own sense of mission and purpose that um, a couple of years later, I became an accidental entrepreneur. And it was only when I kind of like thought back, like, hey, like, how did that happen? How did I get involved in these social issues, particularly around education access? Um, it goes back, to, I think, a lot to what my parents were teaching me around that dinner table growing up, which is dedicate yourself to causes larger than yourself, find great people, believe in something bigger, and then um, you know dedicate yourself through day after day after day, you know the the hard work and the hustle there. And those lessons after, over many many years, they uh, they make you into who you are. Were you guys a religious family? A little bit. So yeah, both my parents grew up um, in the church down in Mississippi, and I think they. I mean, we went to a variety of like, I think we went to Presbyterian church growing up, uh, some Baptist church, went to a Unitarian church for a while. So I think we kind of bounced around a little bit. I uh, had like a little kid's Bible that I used to read, like illustrated guide and kept kept doing that until I was you know, a teenager. And then I, my grandma got me like a teenage Bible. So I was reading that. Um, and so I'd, um, I would say partially religious family. I'm, I think I'm the most religious of the of the bunch of us i'm still reading reading my bible and um you know trying to stay devoted on the path um how would you define your spirit spirituality i'm really really attracted to the example of love and kindness that jesus demonstrates in the gospels and so i've um I, I really get a lot out of reading Old and New Testament, but I particularly learning about Jesus and how he interacted with with people and the the example that he showed, his teachings around love and kindness. That, that's what most uh, calls to me, most sparks me, and I think that's the message that's most relevant to today in the world that we live in, where a little bit more love, a little bit more kindness, I think, can go just such a long way to helping us bridge all these divides and gaps that are forming kind of wider and wider today. Um, my sense is that that message has never been more relevant than today. Wow. Well said. Um, as a debate champion, Washington State 2007. Uh, <laughs> That's right. One of my um, favorite guests is Joel Underwood, and he's a debate coach. Mm. Um, he's been on here six, six or seven times, and we talk politics. Um, if you were to debate religion, mm. whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, because <laughs> so many religions – divide people mm. and cause wars and mm. you're based out of shanghai china right that's right and there's a lot of detaining muslims in china mm. basically based on religion mm. religion make the argument can you make a, a counter argument that religion is good versus bad i was wondering if you could show me some of those debate skills <laughs> i just recently got hip to this uh, crowder guy that, mm. that he'll pick any topic uh -huh. and set on a table and he'll be like, abortion is, is cool, change my mind. Mm. Or abortion sucks, change my mind. Uh -huh. And he just debates. Debates whatever side, whatever. Yeah. Whatever side. Uh -huh. 
that that is a skill that uh, my 12 year old has with me about like, <laughs> brushing teeth and stuff uh-huh. like that. Bedtime, yeah, yeah, and uh, amount of screens and bedtime for sure. Um, That's fun. How would you debate the counter? Yeah, so well, for, I would first of all acknowledge that taken to an ex- a true extreme, almost anything is uh, can be overdone, and almost anything can be used to fuel hatred and divisiveness. So um, unfortunately, a lot of what we see with modern um, religion and a lot of what makes kind of like the media airwaves is a lot of the most divisive, most kind of hateful forms and expressions of religion. So I, I totally grant that. that That's very unfortunate, and I, I wish that weren't the case. Because I think if you get into the scripture and you really get into the gospel of what's Jesus actually uh, teaching, it's love and kindness are at the core of that. And in order to twist, um, there's a lot of ways to twist that for your own kind of political messaging in the 21st century. That does happen, and that's unfortunate. Um, I do think that literally billions of people around the world find um, solace in sadness. They find hope from despair. They find unity from you know, major challenge. And they find a better way for them to walk their path in life through religion. And I think the joy that brings, the hope that brings, the contentment that brings is invaluable. I think it's priceless. And I I don't think you can quantify any of that. Um, I know from my own small one seven, I'm one of seven billion people. I've had a very profound spiritual experience uh, in my walk. And it's been really, really amazing for me. Um, I'm trying to do it uh, you know, do even more and do better and try to share that with people that are open to, to sharing. Uh, but the point you're making is a good one, which is religion has sparked a lot of challenges. And there's a lot of people who are, you know, critical thinkers who look at sort of the totality of evidence in front of them. And wow, it seems like there's a lot of people that are claiming to be religious doing a lot of bad things. And that is true. And it's, it's really, really unfortunate because I think a lot of people could benefit from you know, a spiritual practice or from a religion if they so choose. But um, it makes it hard when there's a lot of people under the mantle of religion doing things that are unethical, immoral, or just plain evil. Mm-hmm. How did you get involved in, in debate? It seems like you had a very massive schedule yourself when you were a child, much like what I think my son is going through right now. But playing sports and being on a debate team and, you know, just getting your schoolwork done mm-hmm. – um, how did debate enter your life? Yep. I'll, I'll tell you the honest story. Um, eighth grade, we're picking classes, and I have uh, you can sign up for one elective back then uh, for freshman year at BHS. And I remember uh, preferencing construction production. That was what I wanted to take because I was good with my hands. I had done a little bit of odd jobbing, and I wanted to make a little bit of higher salary the next summer. So let's get some construction production. I sh- uh, was asked by the cute girl in class, oh, what, what elective did you pick? Construction production. Oh, that's a shame because I picked debate. Oh, well, I was also thinking about debate. Maybe I should. Um, and I literally switched. I switched the pick so that I could uh, – this gal's name is Lindsay. I, so I could do debate with Lindsay. And um, I ended up showing up for debate uh, debate class the next fall. And it um, it was really fun. Like actually I really enjoyed diving in. And then the teacher said, hey, there's actually a debate team at the high school. They meet you know after class. Um, uh, several of you've got potential show up and you know, me and a couple other kids ended up coming out at three o'clock and just really blown away by like, wow, like these like kids are really smart. They like know all this stuff about all these like cool issues. Wow. Like I, I'd like to be like that in three years. And 
I, you know, in a couple instant friendships, there was, it was the first time I really experienced really, really like compassionate mentorship where a, uh, a junior on the team, Rebecca, Rebecca Sivitz really took me under her wing. The sophomore Sean Fraga was right there saying like, oh, I can teach you how to do this. And really quickly, I was just, you know, these are some great people. This is really interesting stuff. And you can start going to tournaments pretty quickly. And, you know, as I said, I'm a competitor. I love getting out there and actually seeing what I can do. And Bainbridge prepared me really, really well. And so pretty quickly experienced a, a tiny taste of success and wanted more of it and started working and working and working to get it. So when you were a kid playing sports, did you ever have a dream like, I'm going to be a professional baseball player? Big time. Or yeah, I wanted to play was, shortstop for the uh, Seattle Mariners. Yeah. Was that your favorite sport, baseball? Yep. Baseball is my sport. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> D- didn't quite grow into the, the full shortstop uh, build to, to go make that happen. But I, I think a dream, even when it's a crazy big one, it, it's been a, those are the North Stars in my life that have actually led me to where I am today. Um, the big dreams, that's sort of the rudder in the sail and like the wind in the sail as well that, that has kind of pulled me forward. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of big, crazy dreams. How did you do in high school? I did okay. I, I was not a, a particularly dedicated student. So if um, – you know, I think I, I finished with a like a 3.15 GPA, which was like right in the middle of my high school class. And I think I was capable of, of doing better, uh, although I wasn't particularly dedicated. I, I almost enjoyed not reading the book that, that the English teacher assigned. I enjoyed kind of fumbling through my homework at the beginning of class instead of actually doing it the night before. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a rebel by nature. And so I think that's, was a manifestation. Um, I was far more dedicated to sports. So baseball, tennis, then eventually running. And then, um, uh, was quite dedicated to, to debate. I would literally be doing like debate preparation during chemistry class. And, uh, yeah, that, that's just what I really enjoyed doing. That. And you didn't catch on with, uh, running until your senior year, right? That's right. Yep. So always enjoyed running, but didn't really do it competitively. wasn't really training or racing. Just I was like a fast baseball player or a you know a quick basketball player, but hadn't um, hadn't actually gotten in the track thing. What was the pivot moment? One of the pivot moments was was it another girl. <laughs> no, this time it was three buddies. Um, three buddies tell me, "Hey, we've got this." Uh, mile relay team and we're going to be mm. pretty good but we need a fourth and you know we know you're quick have you ever thought about going out for track and um these three guys were pretty cool my buds um uh, patrick bevan and austin and so start training a little bit and realize i've got i've got a talent for it and it's really really fun when you get started in something and you're seeing like pretty immediate positive feedback and results you know my times are coming down i'm feeling stronger and these guys are just so they're so good at what they do and they're kind of taking me under the wing getting me up to speed so um, i was the new guy that senior year and uh oh we had a ton of fun literally we're like lifting weights at patrick's every day after school carb loading getting tons of protein to try to bulk up a little bit for those runs and uh yeah those were the days awesome yeah so you out of high school and the college process mm-hmm. starts. Um, tell me how that went for you. I heard you had an opportunity to go to West Point, which is very prestigious, but you got to go to University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And um, with the 3-1, how difficult was that process and how did you choose one over the other? Yeah, so I I was very, very fortunate Um in a couple of respects. One is, you know, I had this debate stuff going on. And so I had, I had basically 
started distinguishing myself as like you know a, a, an established debater. Um, and so I, I had a story to tell, basically. So even though you know the GPA wise, um, not super special, particularly when you're looking at you know West Point or Chicago admission standard. Though I had a story to tell, which was um, I've dedicated myself kind of you know academically and uh, intellectually to to debate, and here's what I've been able to accomplish with that dedication. Now I'm seeking to you know apply myself fully in the classroom and to like enriching a campus environment. So I. I um, was able to learn from debaters a year or two older that it actually applied to some of the you know, same programs and just get their advice, get their feedback. And that was super, super useful because like, I had no idea what, what is UChicago actually looking for in an admissions essay. Uh, they're, you know, it's all about the life of the mind, it's like discussing how you and your journey, how you've reached the point where you are and how you want to dedicate yourself more fully to that. And that, um, uh, that, that was really useful. I basically figured out, hey, I this is the story I can tell that's you know authentic to me, that's, that's genuine to me, and that shows what I can kind of contribute going forward. Um, I also applied to West Point because I was, you know, we have a family tradition of military service. Mm-hmm. You know, both my granddads fought in the, um, the Second World War uh, throughout the South Pacific, um, including some pretty harrowing stuff. Um, and so hearing those stories kind of secondhand growing up, I, you know, those are some of, that's the dream. It's like, I want to serve my country. I want to sort of test myself under the most like, you know, difficult, strenuous, dangerous situations. Uh, and I want to be, you know, a leader. I want to command uh, fellow men and women safely um, during this. And so that was a dream I had for a long, long time. And West Point seemed like a great way to fulfill that where you're actually getting a free college education. You're, you're literally getting paid to go to school, which is pretty amazing. And, um, uh, they also have a great debate team, a great like you know, athletics program, obviously. So I wanted to, to check that out, and I, I actually I visited both, got to know you know debate and track coaches at both, and really you know it was really really wonderful. I ultimately the, the the decision calculation came down to I didn't think at age eighteen that I was mature enough to join the military and to make a ten year commitment. Um, wow. At age eighteen, which which you've got to do, you, you get this free, wonderful free education. Though the the responsibility you have is to be a uh, you know an officer for five years in the army, and so I uh, that was very very attractive. But it would also feel like wow, ten years that's a really big chunk of time, particularly when you're eighteen. So yeah, that's more than fifty percent of your life at that point, right? It's big, you're and so commit the next half of your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't feel um, in that moment I was ready to do that. So I ended up getting a scholarship to the University of Chicago. Elected to, um, to to head there, and it was um, I think the right decision because it it was totally life changing in so many positive ways and a wonderful community for me. And um, you know I think being from Bainbridge, we're fortunate where we we have a lot of choices, and I happen to have two really good ones. And um, fortunate the way it, it it all shook out. So what did you study there? Did you run track there, and um, did you debate? Yeah, so I studied international relations after that worked out all right (laughs) worked out that's right i started with uh, i wanted to do astrophysics so study how like the stars something simple exactly and i i quickly realized i couldn't hack the advanced math and so i got my midterm back and it was a 
somewhere in the 30s, I think. And so it was uh, it was a good wake up call. Hey, I, I don't think I'm cut out for this. Um, fell, fell in international relations and had a couple professors who were just so passionate about the subject. And mm-hmm. it really just brought it to life in a way that, you know, all of us know we have that favorite teacher that really brought a subject to life for us. That was me with international relations. And it makes a huge difference if your teacher is enthusiastic every day and goal oriented and complimentary you know Mm. kids at a young age they just need that little boost every once in a while even if it's nothing huge but the lack of interaction really can make a kid get turned off from being interested in a subject yep big time and and it was fortunately the opposite where it was it was so great i was so fired up and really quickly i knew that hey i found my, my academic passion here um so much so that i end up doing quite a bit of travel during college um, for like these conferences and things just to explore more, have the subjects kind of come to life. And then even wrote a, uh, a long, you know, literally a 50 page bachelor's thesis by, uh, by the end of the experience about um, the subject was China's naval developments and how the U S can respond to basically create a, a coalition of democratic maritime allies, such as Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Australia, India to safely contain China's rise and it was it was a fun you know, research experiment. Put down some ideas and got tons of good encouragement along the way to do that. So, um, and it's one that I'm I'm still deeply interested in you know, global affairs and how the, how the U.S. we can create the right you know alliances and and structures for peace and prosperity. So, de- definitely a subject that still interests me all these years later. Yeah. So, did you play sports? Did you debate? I, I did. So, I I started out running my freshman year um, pretty quickly. I realized I wasn't putting in as much uh, time, effort, uh, dedication as I needed to really like get ahead, especially at the collegiate level. There were just so many other things I wanted to do. So I, I basically washed out, um, played a couple seasons of rugby, uh, rode for the team for a short while, um, did all that. I was more interested in student government in the investment club. I ended up joining a fraternity. Um, I did three debate tournaments. Um, but the thing that really I think was was really life changing for me was getting out into the community. So University of Chicago, uh, for those that uh, may not know, it's it's in the city on the south side, a little neighborhood called Hyde Park. Hyde Park, amazing! It's a really really wonderful place. But surrounded on three sides are neighborhoods that just do not have the resources and basically have very very high. There, you know, there's relatively high gang rates, violence rates, uh, you know, a couple of places where there's like murders or not an uncommon occurrence um, on South Shore or in Woodlawn. Um, and so, yeah, I getting out into the community, uh, it was it was very, very powerful to, you know, I started out as like a chess teacher. I love playing chess, working with elementary school students. That was wonderful. I began coaching a inner city debate team, really, 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 really smart kids who just didn't have the resources we did at Bainbridge. And so me spending, I was doing like four hours a week. That was massive for these guys because they finally had a coach that really knew the activity. They had a coach that would really challenge them. And you know, I believed in them. And so like I expected them to, to improve, dedicate, and um, go compete. And that was a wonderful experience. And it was eye-opening because what I realized is even someone who's not a super um, – you know, I wasn't a teacher. I didn't have like you know formal qualifications, but just the again the energy and enthusiasm, like we talked about with mom and dad around the dinner table, you can do some good. And that sparked an idea to actually get some of my friends and I involved with a group where we would go work with 
high school students um, around financial issues, saving, budgeting, goal setting, all around the idea of going to college. And that um, that was for the, the initial seeds of a group called Money Think that um, was an NGO I worked on during college and now 11 years later, um, still going strong. And so it uh, ended up being, that was the life-changing of everything during university. I think that sort of uh, community service and youth mentorship, that element was the, the, the element and the aspect I think was most life-changing and most transformative for me. Awesome. Great story. How, how did you, how did you like the Windy City? Was it as bad as people think? Cause I, I think of Chicago as old, old mob city, uh, deep dish pizza, which I hate or oh, strongly wow. dislike. Oh man, I love deep dish. And, um, just the wind and the concrete jungle that it is. So the, the weather is the worst part for me. So like, yeah, I, I'm a wimp. So the winter's real rough. I'm a wimp. So the summer is real rough. It's very hot and humid in the summer. Very, very cold, windy, frozen in the winter. Uh, despite that, it's, it's a really, really wonderful city. It's, there's so, yeah, it's how to describe it. There's a ton of energy, you know, walking down downtown, you're uh, it's like a beehive if in like the best way it's like just a very very dynamic place that's you know uh, attractive to me and beautiful architecture it's my favorite uh, one of my favorite cities in the world for for the wonderful architecture and then the people as well like it's a very warm welcoming open place and people are tough but they're also very warm too and i think that contrast is is quite cool so being one of these guys that i think is all over the shop like you see this shiny object, I would think you would <laughs> run after it. <laughs> Do you constantly need noise around you as well? Some, in some respects, like I, I tend to do a lot of work of my best like creative work at like a coffee shop where there's like lots of white noise, there's hustle bustle. But like if I'm reading, you know, I'd like to be in bed with just like a lamp and like you know, silence. And so it depends a little bit what I'm aiming to do. But when I'm in kind of a production mode, when I'm, you know, creating or making or writing, um, some white noise, some buzz helps. And then when I'm in kind of consumption mode, then like more peace and quiet is usually useful for me. Yeah. For whatever reason, I like to have a lot of clamor around myself, mm-hmm. except if I meditate or be mindful or go through my breathing exercises. I like mm. to go down to Blakely Harbor and, you know, that old cannery building that's oh, wow, out okay. there with the graffiti on it. There you go. Yeah, You know I what I'm know. talking about? I do know. Yeah, yeah. I like to go down there every once in a while and uh, just look out on the water and take in that uh, marine air and practice my breathing and be super quiet and just by myself and I'm envisioning it right now and I want to go. Beautiful. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> awesome. Hey, I want to get into post-college and how entrepreneurial you are and the places you've been and then get into the ultra marathoning. Awesome. Seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. <laughs> yeah. That's what you do just for fun. But before that, i got to pay a quick bill. Is that all right with yes, you, Greg? Yes, let's do it. All right. Support for the Bystander Podcast comes from Manscaped, who is the best in the men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. That's why this revolutionary company, Manscaped, has redesigned the electric trimmer. Their lawnmower 2.0 has proprietary advanced skin-safe technology, so this trimmer won't nick or snag your nuts. It's also waterproof, so you can use it in the shower. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TINY at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped. Use the code TINY. Clean up your nuts and make people proud. 
that's tough to read, <laughs> especially from somebody who I think is uh, a pretty pure and good guy. But uh, <laughs> before we get into all this stuff, let's let's pivot to your nuts. You were a high school streaker. I forgot to bring that up earlier. What made you um, streak, and oh, was manscaping a thing back then? Oh man, I was hoping the story would never come out. Um, oh, I saved the video, but I'm not going to put that up. <laughs> so I, uh, I was freshman class uh, vice. Stop, stop, stop. How's this not come up when you've done it multiple times? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I was, I was definitely young and stupid when I was young and stupid. Um, I. Uh, <laughs> Freshman, yeah, freshman year, uh, I was uh, the class vice president. So we, uh, one of the traditions of BHS, as folks may be aware, there's a uh, uh, homecoming skit tradition. So before the homecoming game, there's a big assembly. Each of the years, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, they have to present a skit of like one minute, and there's like some theme, and it um, it's basically a collection of like inside jokes. They're supposed to be really funny to like your friends. That's the the, the basic idea. But the freshmen generally do a really bad job in the skit. And so I vowed, hey, we're going to have a really good skit this year. Um, it did not go over well. Our skit, we were basically booed loudly by the seniors. The juniors joined in. And it got bad enough where like people were like throwing stuff at us by the end. So I felt I feel like I let my friends down. And to make it up for folks, I don't know how this computed logically, but I decided to uh, uh, put on a Speedo and a ski mask. Um, and then I, yeah, I, um, sorry, Mr. Fritz, but that was me that ran across the field. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I uh, ended up getting chased by uh, a fellow named Tony Jones, who was the, um, he may actually still be there. He was a very, very fit security guard. And, you know, he doesn't want people out running on the field during halftime when they're about to you know, raise money from the, the folks returning for homecoming. So I uh, uh, did that and then ran off into the woods and then was a folk hero to my three friends that were there waiting for me. So. <laughs> I think more than that. <laughs> hey, um, great story. Money think, money think is one of your businesses. How many businesses do you have now in versus how many boards that you set on? Yes, yeah, so I'm working on um, um, help start and help lead uh, two companies. One's an NGO, Money Think. So yeah, we're a not for profit. What is an NGO? A uh, non-governmental organization. So basically, like uh, a not-for-profit, 501c3, and we help um, uh, students basically afford university. And we've got this really cool mobile app that helps them figure out how much they're actually going to have to pay for each of the colleges that have accepted them, because a lot of colleges, either intentionally or accidentally. Uh, kind of are a little deceptive. It's hard to know how much it's cloudy. You know, how much am I actually going to have to pay to go here and graduate over four years? And for a lot of the students we serve, primarily inner city, black and brown students that are underrepresented, finances is the number one reason why someone would have to drop out of school. And so it's this really tough situation where you've got, um, you've spent a year or two earning credits, but you can't afford to go on. And a lot of credits aren't very transferable. So you've just burned like Twenty-five, thirty, forty thousand dollars. Now you're massively in debt. What do I do? Uh, and we want to help avoid that. And so our motto is less debt, more degrees. So mm. That's our mission. It's that's a great uh, statement. Yeah, and it's it's pretty awesome. We, we've been doing it for eleven years, and um, we're on to some good stuff. And really seeking to ramp up the impact by reaching more students in the uh, the years ahead. How do you accumulate all that data for your app? 
Yeah, so a lot of um, a lot of the data is uh, so two ways. One of them is open source through the Department of Education. They release a ton of information that is hard to search and it's hard to 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 make actionable. So we've actually combed all that through a technique called scraping, where we basically put all that into um, a much easier to use database. That when you're scrolling, for instance, University of California Riverside or University of Washington Tacoma, you can get a real you know true cost for yourself. That's number one. Number two is customized machine learning. And that's a fancy way of saying that we basically have a computer program that slowly is teaching itself uh, by accumulating more and more data so that we can basically give you better tailored recommendations. Okay. And then what grew out of MoneyThink? It did this, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Dyad? Is that a offshoot of this or is it something completely different it's something different though with a similar mission so i think um, yeah dyad.com we're a mentorship platform and we help students primarily from um, emerging markets like china and india and brazil we connect them to mentors from uh, american universities to help them earn scholarships for graduate school Um, and our big idea is that money shouldn't be you know an obstacle. It shouldn't be a barrier. But unfortunately, in education today, overwhelmingly, if you're not from like the right family or the right school, you're shut out. You or, or you don't test well. Or if you don't test well, for sure, for sure. And unfortunately, there's tons and tons and tons and tons of students who are super motivated. They want to figure out how they can you know get the best education possible, and yet they're they're shut out of the system. And so I've uh, I learned about that when I was when I was an exchange or when I was an international student myself uh, at Cambridge in the UK. You you meet all these wonderful people. You're hearing more of their story, and you hear that they're one of the lucky ones. Hey, I knew someone that actually helped me to apply, um, or I you know someone suggested this program or this scholarship. That's how I'm here. But there's thousands of other students that were just as qualified, that were just as motivated, that couldn't actually crack this because they didn't have the information they needed. And so we, we're a mentorship platform. It's a freemium style model. So that's like most, most stuff is free. You can watch tons of videos, read tons of articles, actually apply to university through our website. And there is a premium arm as well, where if your family um, is able to, sweet, you can actually purchase one-to-one mentorship as well. And that, of course, helps us uh, – those funds help us do all the good free work that we're doing. So it's a, um, it's a social enterprise. We have um, – you know, we're, we're seeking to make a profit. Uh, we have venture capital investors that are helping us grow the business. And it's been a really fun ride. That's based in Shanghai, so it's very international scope. We do help Americans, uh, many, many Americans through through the program. And our our aim is to help the most motivated students find the you know find the opportunity and get funding for it. And so far, helped uh, students earn over twenty seven million dollars in scholarships. That's incredible. And you don't Photoshop people from the gym into a rowing boat and get them into soccer <laughs> for millions of dollars. No, we're 100% academically honest. And What? No, I know, right? Cause That's a new in, thing. In China especially, um, most of the competition – and part of why I started this was, look, it's so corrupt. There's, there's dozens, hundreds of firms that will just write – personal statements for people mm-hmm. that have no bearing on reality. It's like we're claiming this person was president of XY club or is captain of this team when you know they've done neither of those things. And really 
that's a lose, lose, lose because the student oftentimes isn't able to actually hack hack it even if they were to get into the school because they're not right. prepared, they're not motivated for it. The school misses out on a competent, capable, motivated student. And then you know, even society loses out on a qualified graduate that could actually go do good things with that education. So, That's a good you know, point. Yeah, so I learned about this back in uh, 2011 and said, hey, look, there's got to be a better way. And you know, I'm the kind of person that um, I'm going to start building. So like we literally – you know, created a, um, a little landing page website and started saying, hey, is anyone interested in the service? There was interest. And, you know, we've done, we've helped more than 2,100 paying clients all these years later and literally millions of students through the free resources we offer. So there's a huge global demand, a huge global need. And our aim is to, uh, to help bridge that gap. Is this how you derive income or is this just side projects for other yep. things? So this, this is the day job um, since September and, 5th, 2012. And do you live in Shanghai right now? I am bouncing around, so I have. Yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, so I, I've lived in Shanghai for seven plus years. I'm aiming to actually, um, you know, do more remote work in the coming year, and also spend more time back home on Bainbridge with family too. Awesome. So, how many languages do you speak? I speak one English, and then I speak a smattering of some Mandarin and Spanish. So, but nice. Yeah. Um, how's the food in China? Oh, it's great. Um, I, do they call it Chinese food in China or just food? They call it food, but it's it's very regional actually. So the Chinese food that we know as Americans is not actually Chinese food. It's kind of fun because when you go over there, there's um, all that's so eclectic. Like uh, to give you to give you a couple of small examples here, um, if you want really really spicy food in China, well, there's two good choices. One of them is called Sichuan style. Sichuan is the name of a province in the mountains north of India. And it's really freaking spicy um, in in what's called hot pot. And it's basically a soup that's like yeah, very, very yeah. hot. It's delicious. It's really, really good. But that actually is not the spiciest. If you want like the spicy, the spicy, there's a uh, place called Hunan, which is further north. And this is noodles that have like these like really hot chili flakes on them. And so, yeah, there, there's a ton of variety within Chinese food. And it's it's – usually spicier it's more meat more bones in the meat um which i was i'm still not very good at like i'm better with you know kind of boneless chicken or boneless beef or something but um there's a lot of bones in there as well which uh, chinese actually really enjoy it's like like a fun obstacle as you're eating to like mm. properly get the meat off the bone or whatever but um i never got into that but that, that, that is a, a part of the culinary experience so uh, the food is really really good um i do miss that when i'm away but i'm eating less and I don't eat much Chinese food when I'm in the States because there's a lot of other good food I want to try too. Yeah. I want to get into your diet a little later, but let's keep talking about these companies. Yeah. Um, your Wikipedia page is crazy. I didn't even want to get into it, <laughs> but um, it's keeping me ahead of the game, I think. What about this Rhodes Scholarships for Chinese students? Yeah. So part of um, – uh, a few few folks out there may be uh, familiar with the Rhodes Scholarship. Yeah, I uh, didn't get one, by the way. No, me neither. Uh, it, it's a it's a it's a cool deal. But the Rhodes Scholarship was initially just for English Commonwealth countries, along with the U.S. Um, and Germany, as far as I understand it. So, like, it was founded like 1902, I think, roughly. But um, for the first hundred plus years of the scholarship, no one from China had actually ever been given a Rhodes Scholarship um, until 2015. Uh, and in 2015, they they made the first four Chinese Rhodes Scholars, um, and it was really really cool to be a small part of that. Um, one of the one of the Dyad Scholars that we advised, 
He was the first Chinese male Rhodes Scholar, uh, which you know we were very proud of him. A fellow named Tom, who's just a remarkable young man with a vision for the future of media and how media can be you know more responsible in telling kind of uplifting stories, which I think is a, a really good mission. And um, it was also a real a real delight. I was uh, one of the inaugural pre-selection committee members, which is a fancy way of saying I basically read a bunch of applications and gave some advice about who to shortlist um, in this process. And so that was uh, really, really wonderful, just a, a pretty, you know, remarkably established organization going into a totally new place that didn't yet have its footing because China is so different than the rest of the world. And it was a... Uh, um, it was, you know, I was tickled to have a chance to kind of share some quote insight on uh, on this market, on these uh, the student population. Well. Yeah, I think I could talk about China all day, but I want to talk about you. Um, you seem to be around investments in education as things that are really important to mm. you. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about these other scholarships and um, the boards that you set on that are based in in those subjects. Yeah, so I, I uh, very, very, very fortunately um, earned scholarships that actually helped me pay for my education, um, both at University of Chicago and then at Cambridge. Um, two in particular have been um, pretty momentous for me. One is called the uh, Harry S. Truman Scholarship. And that is a um, – it's an award for public service given to college juniors who wish to devote themselves to a career in public service. And I um, – you know, my aim is to, to do good work in the field of education. And so I had the, uh, the amazing chance to represent Washington as the 2010 recipient of the, uh, the Truman Scholarship. And wonderful community. There's 60 of us across the country, and you get to know each other. People are doing just remarkably good work and interesting stuff across all sectors, all disciplines. The only commonality is we're devoted to doing good. We're devoted to public service as we go. Um, that is pretty remarkable, and I uh, I've been a real you know just learned a ton from this community, and I now have a, a pretty cool opportunity. I'm on the uh, the uh, board of directors for the Truman uh, Scholars Association, which is a uh, basically the formal body uh, community of Truman Scholars. Every year, there's 60 new scholars by congressional mandate. Um, yeah, the Truman Scholarship it's the it's the presidential memorial to public service in the name of Harry Truman. So it's this really really cool um, kind of public private partnership. And having the chance to work with some amazing colleagues on the board is um, is definitely a special experience. Um, do you get to pick out scholarship recipients? That um, I, I, that's not my role. Um, there is a one, there's a really really great selection committee, and they have an incredible process mm-hmm. because there's there's literally upwards of a thousand applicants each year that are like not, and there's like a nominations process, like a ton of hoops you've got to jump through, including like a very very like sweat inducing interview that I still remember, you know, ten years later. So it, um, they have that figured out really well, and and so I'm not involved. Uh, on the selection side, more on the um, kind of community building and impact once you're, you know, once the scholars have been identified. How do we maximize that? Because it's really this like incredible community of, of folks, and you want to make sure that you're getting um, the most bang for the buck and you're creating the most good you can. Can you um, think about a particular failure that catapulted you to do more? Oh man, uh, where to begin? So I, you know, if you're browsing my resume or my, my website or something, you see all this like shiny string of successes, right? Mm-hmm. But ev- literally every single success is the result of 
multiple failures dozens of failures um and so like when you see like the highlights of like dyad and we've helped all these students uh, raise all the scholarship money well there's so many things we've done wrong um each and every day you know we've we've launched lots of products that just didn't work we've pitched investors you know i've gotten i've gotten about 15 investors to say yes to actually fund us over the years and more than 250 have said no um, and yet mm. like that of course is not on my cv because that's not like the highlight reel right um, right with you know athletic success I've, I've run some big races and done quite well in some of them and i've also totally my first ever sponsored run like the sponsors closely watching me by mile 86 uh, of this 100 mile run that I'm supposed to be doing very well at, if not winning, by my lady six, I'm, I'm literally dropping out because I can't keep going. Um, and like, oh man, like feels like my world is crashing down. I, I've realized that for me, and I think for, for each of us, those failures are the very best source of new learning. And if we treat it the right way with the right mindset of new inspiration, we actually get way better, way stronger, way more adaptive, way more agile from those experiences where things didn't go the way we set out. Um, and that's so. So many failures along the way. For, you know, for every scholarship I got, I did apply to the Rhodes Scholarship. Didn't get an interview. They didn't. You know, okay, fair enough. There are other scholarships that maybe would want me. And then you keep applying, you get better. Then you end up earning. You know, the Truman Scholarship. Awesome. I'm going to roll with this. So, uh, failure is a great teacher, and I think having a mindset, a growth mindset, right? Totally a growth mindset. That's um, that's how we get ahead ultimately. Yeah, you working with the Gates Foundation too? Working with the Gates Foundation. I was a um, a Gates Cambridge scholar, so uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation actually paid me to go to graduate school at Cambridge, which is pretty amazing. I learned a ton there and want to pay it forward. So I, I work on the board of directors for the Gates Cambridge Alumni Association, um, helping to build community in the Asia Pacific region, and have gotten a ton out of that. I big admire of Bill and Melinda and just really honored I can um, contribute to the mission. Yeah, you met him? I have met Bill Gates Sr., the dad. Not yet Bill Gates Jr. So, Bill, I'd love to meet you if you're listening. So. Yeah, like Bill Gates listens to my tiny podcast, but who knows? I got this thing the other day. <laughs> I was like, people in Hong Kong, Tennessee, you know, you never know. You look at the graphics, you're in, there's people in Spain listening. I'm just blown away. Wow, like, that's awesome. It's weird. Um, but that's this medium. We can reach... Anybody, anywhere through podcasts. It's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of fun. And I think it's still early. It's about 10, 12 years into it. And it's really, you start to see radio personalities coming over. And now mm. radio shows are transferring to podcasts, TV. It's getting into news, CNN, mm. you know, the New Yorker magazine. They're all jumping in. So it's a, it's a crowded pool. But I think we all have something to contribute, whether it be uh, tips on sewing, tips on dancing. Mm -hmm. On uh, getting scholarships, I wanted to talk about this uh, Maker Girl uh, STEM program that you. Yeah, do. absolutely. I, I want to get as many of these programs out before I get to the real good stuff uh -huh. about running. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I um, the, the the long story short on this one, I love sharing kind of the entrepreneurial journey with people just starting out because you never know where a spark of, of inspiration will come from and you never know how powerful that can be. So I uh, accepted an invitation to share the Money Think journey with a group full of, a group of aspiring entrepreneurs at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and gave a little talk, you know, here are lessons we learned, here are challenges we faced, here's what we're up to now, you know, here's how to stay in touch. Two or three years passed by, 
I've totally forgotten about this event. Just haven't even thought about it. When I get an email from a young lady saying, hey, uh, my name's Lizzie. I was in the audience at this event like three years ago. I want to tell you about the startup that I've started, um, Maker Girl. And she's laying out, hey, look, young girls in so many ways are directed away from science, technology, engineering, math, and careers of this kind um, by you know, social forces, by educators, incidentally. We want to fight back at that by inspiring little girls through 3D printing to pursue careers in STEM. Uh, she laid out the mission. Wow, that's a really big mission. That's really cool. And the model, which is this kind of traveling workshop where little girls get exposed during like the, each summer and then starting chapters of what are called change makers, these college-age women who are studying science, technology, engineering, math, who then go and teach little girls age like five through nine about 3D printing. Uh, and she, Very cool. Which is awesome. It's like, wow, that's a super cool model. And for what they're trying to do, my experiences with money think could be valuable because you know we started chapters in 30 different universities across the country. We had to train college-age mentors to work with younger people. Um, we had to raise a bunch of money because that's what it takes to build a not-for-profit. Um, and as she's laying out, laying all this out, it's like, wow, I would love to help. Um, and so I, I end up joining the advisory board and they're doing just incredible work. And actually one of my aims for 2020 is to help Maker Girl, which is actually headquartered in Chicago, help them expand to Seattle. So if anyone um, listening in has a, you know, a young daughter or a college age daughter uh, interested in science, technology, engineering, math, would actually sincerely love to get in touch and would love to actually create a chapter at uh, one of the local universities here so that we can start doing some good together. Awesome. That's, that's a takeaway too. Once you make something with your hands, yep, it stays with you. And at an early age like that, I remember my little boxcar in Boy Scouts. Mm, yes. You know, Same uh, here. It, it was something that I built with my hands and it had, it radiated with me. Big time. And when you watch, you know, you see your boxcar moving and it's like, wow, like the wheel that I put on helped to go faster. Like there's a sense of accomplishment there that, right. yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Very cool. That's why it's important that vocational classes, STEM, art, physical education stay in the schools. I, I really think there's more than just economics, math, language arts. and Big time. You know, because we want to find a tangible skill set that we can enjoy mm. and profit from and share. For sure. Love that. Absolutely. Hey, so you run a little bit, I guess. I do. Run a little bit. <laughs> My son came home and he was talking about, hey, this guy, hey, you ever see this guy that, that runs for the Seahawks and uh, he has to run because there's no TVs where he lives mm -hmm. and <laughs> something to that extent. Um, I, the story is over a year ago now. Um, but t talk a little bit about how your mindset continued to push yourself because you just said something a couple of minutes ago that I just wanted to get up and leave. Like, you know, I kind of got tired of the 86th mile, you know, <laughs> if I'm in my car and I drive 86 miles, <laughs> I am tired and I want to quit. Now you're running, you're, you're 31, I'm 53. So my joints mm -hmm. are a little different than yours. I've always, um, had running in my life, you know, cross country when I was young because I was very asthmatic and that's mm. how I got out of asthma. Oh, wow. And then um, soccer, of course. Yep. You know, I played center mid, so I felt like I wanted to run 90 minutes each way yep. the whole time. It was just a slow and steady pace. I was never fast. I was never that guy that could do anything in sprints. 
But as long as there was a ball out there, mm-hmm. I could run all day. Awesome. And all day meaning 90 minutes. 90 minutes, perfect, yeah. How did you go from one-fourth of a mile at track <laughs> <laughs> to a mile to your first 5K to 10K to a marathon to now what they call ultra marathon, which is kind of common now, you know, I, I, I hear about a lot of these guys, but you're one of just a handful of people that have accomplished seven ultra marathons in seven days yes, on seven continents. Yes, seven marathons, seven days, seven continents, yeah. Oh, so seven marathons. So 24 miles, is that what that is? Yeah, 26.2, yep. 26.2. Yep. And I've been following you doing the, these airport runs, uh-huh. <laughs> which I want to talk about too. How did you get this mentality that you could do more? Because a marathon, you know, it t- it takes a lot for somebody to get off the couch. Uh, shout out to Lynn Lindbergh, who does uh, Couch to Fit. Hmm. Um, cool. She, she was on this um, podcast, and she was talking about the progression of just taking small steps. Yeah. When I look at you, it's a much bigger step. Hey, it's... Uh, you know, on the highlight reel, it may look like big steps, but I'm a big I'm a big believer in mindset. And so, if your mind is right, you can get your body right. And How do I get my mind right? No, no. Here we go. So, it's it's conditioning yourself to have like a standard of excellence and to take small daily actions to get closer to that standard. Ultimately, and here's what I mean. So, I began as quarter miler, as you mentioned. I was a, I was a pretty good quarter miler, but I was a pretty mediocre like five k runner. Like it, it's it's a different it's a different mindset. It's fast and it's far. It's just tough. It's a tough race that I couldn't really wrap my head around. I ended up kind of getting talked into running a marathon with a buddy of mine. Uh, we train a little bit. We run. Hey, actually, I'm better at that distance than I was at the five k. Just like a different rhythm. It's a different kind of uh, tune. But from the experience, actually training for that, I realized. Look, you have the big crazy goal of running a marathon. And then it's a matter of like kind of creating a basic game plan. Hey, we, we need to be running six days a week. We need to be, you know, here are the rough distances we're going to run each day. We need to do this like stretching routine before and after. Whenever we're feeling sore, we use ice. So basically creating a set of like rules basically. And then it was just a matter of like doing the work. So plan the work, then do the work. Plan the work, work the plan, as they say. Um, that, um, that starts instilling a little bit of confidence that you're actually going to be able to achieve this like really big, crazy thing that you're aiming for. And then for me, it wasn't, you know, after doing, I, I think I ran seven marathons, seven or eight marathons. For me at that moment, it wasn't like, I want to do something even bigger and crazier. It was like, look, I, instead of running on like through cities, urban you know environments, I'd love to like just do this, but like out in the trails, like in a national park. And it just so happens that a lot of that style of run, like the off-road trail style, is longer. It's ultra. Um, And so it's 50K or 100K. So I signed up for the first kind of accidentally. I I thought I was initially doing a 5K, just like in a beautiful place. Uh, It was called the Jurassic Coast in England. Sorry, you signed up for a 5K and did a 50K? I did, yeah. I I (laughs) did not read the fine print uh, carefully at all. And so I... I signed up for a race that was uh, much, much longer than what I was anticipating. But the beauty was, you know, I found, I realized my error um, you know, three, four days before actually going down there. So, oh, as I was so not a like ticket. after the fourth mile or whatever. No, like, well, no, I'm still going. <laughs> wow. Well, oh yeah, that would be, that'd be torture. But um, 
I, it really is mindset. And so it's, you got to wrap your head around that big goal. And ultimately it's step by step by step and you're running the mile you're on. That's all you can do. You can't Mm. finish, you can't finish a 50 K in the first mile. You've just got to run the mile that you're on as you go. So do you think of it mile per mile per mile? A little bit. uh, And even boiled down more, I think about it as like, I want to get into autopilot where when you're well-trained, your body and mind and kind of spirit are one system such that you can actually run even pretty quickly, almost effortlessly, where it's just, it's rhythmic and it's, it's a little bit like a pilot setting autopilot and just laying back. And like, that's kind of how it feels And the, the longer in a race that you can stay in that flow, the less mental and cognitive effort goes into that. And the less your mind has to sort of boss your body around, because ultimately by the end of a race, especially if you're running it hard, your mind has to go into overdrive and you're pushing your body every step. And you're, you're, you're almost like a cracking the whip on yourself, you know, faster, go, 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 go. And especially if you're running kind of neck and neck with somebody for, for a position in a race, it, um, uh, the mind has to be very active, but the, the challenge is your mind can't do that for 15 hours straight. Like that's just very, it's very taxing on the mind. My, my mind can't at least. And so like, I'm better off if that's 20 minutes or 90 minutes over the course of a day instead of 12 hours consecutively, because it, it really diminishes the value diminishes the more you're doing it. And so, uh, yeah, I, I call it autopilot is it's a flow state where, you know, I basically am able to turn off my brain for three or four hours. And I, I look at my watch like, wow, look, I've been going for eight hours now. That's awesome. Like I don't, you know, a bunch of miles have passed since I last checked. And that, um, that's when I'm running at my best when I'm just sort of a, it's this like state of mobile meditation and I'm almost, you know, worshiping in this outdoor cathedral and that's how, mm. that's how it feels. And yet like I'm moving and it's, I've passed, you know, literally mountains or forded rivers, and yet, you know, this state of flow as I go. Wow. Do you have any techniques to get your mind to shut off at times? Like, how do you sleep at night? Like, <laughs> how do you shut it down? Yeah, so I have a pretty busy, um, active mind, but I find um, I really, really press pretty hard each day. You know, I'm trying to fill my day with, you know, various activities and engagements and, and make the most of each day that I can, right? For me, um, I run myself so hard during the day. I have a I have a sleep tracking app that I use to ensure I'm mm-hmm. getting good sleep. And actually, I, I I basically am asleep within one to three minutes almost every night from the time my like my head touches the pillow. Uh, in part because I think I've worked my body and my mind so hard during the day, like the body is just ready to surrender and like ready for recovery. It, it, it's eight hours of recovery exactly. You sleep more than eight hours, don't you? I uh, somewhere between seven and a half and ten hours a night, depending on yeah. I would how think hard your body needs more sleep than yeah. I try to. Yeah, LeBron was trying to say that he gets ten hours minimum. He's actually a big inspiration of mine. I read a book called Why We Sleep, and then started looking into like you know athletes and how their their routines. And yeah, LeBron is like you know setting the standard for um, the dude is always icing, always like strengthening a lot of calisthenics and then create sleeper as well. So I try to learn from his game. So when, when you warm up for a run, mm-hmm. what does that look like? Yep. So I, um, I have the same, I'm a man of routines. And so, yeah, I, I try to keep just a few simple routines and then do them, do them, do them. Um, for me, I get my knees, ankles, hips, and back loose 
Um, and if I get those four units really, really loose, I'm going to have a good day um, out running. And so I do a lot of circle, circular motion. So like really gentle, small circles to start with each of those before doing uh, a little larger and then before doing like kind of max um range of motion for each of those. It's like literally like almost like a hula hoop motion with my hips. So do you go for a quick run and then start it or are you straight out static Bef- stretching? Yeah, so bef- yeah, before I'm running, um, and, and it's, it's dynamic in the sense of I don't force, um, yeah, I'm doing a bunch of big circles and big loops with my body. So like with my ankle, I'm like sort of drawing letters of the alphabet. With my knees, I'm like bending left, bending right, like doing little skier exercises. Then like hula hoop motion with my hips mm-hmm. and kind of like arching my back. And for me, that basically like gets the blood flow going, loosens the muscle, makes sure like the joints are are feeling good. And during that, I do like a little self diagnosis where like, ooh, like my right ankle feels a little, you know, a little something. And then I'll spend a little bit more time just getting that really loosened up. Uh, and most days, like there's no warning signs. It's just we're all good. Let's go. Let's go jog. I try to take the first mile or two. Um, real gentle. And so if I'm doing like a time track, if it's gonna be like a tough day of running, then I'll, I won't even like start the Garmin. I'll just like do a mile or two, just real easy before I start, before I start my clock. Um, and then other like more casual days, just hit, hit, hit start and then just begin. And the first mile or two will be slower and I'll, I'll really like break into the pace as I go. And that way, like the blood's moving. Uh, cause one thing I've learned in my old age here, full 31 is, um, slow and steady really does win the race. When I mm-hmm. first got into this, you know, I started running ultras when I was 23 and I would really, I would train really, really, really hard. I was in a huge hurry to get where I was going. And I spent a lot more time in uh, with you know, injuries and with a little nagging soreness. And um, I was just really, really tight. So if I compare my physique today to where I was, you know, seven, eight years ago, there's no comparison. Like I am looser, more limber, more flexible, um, and it's, it's I have better habits at 31 than I did at 23, mm-hmm. certainly. So. Hopefully we all do. Now, do you start with major muscles like your quads or hamstrings when you do start stretching? A little bit. And how long is your stretch routine? Stretch routine is about 10 minutes. And wow. yeah, about 10 minutes. Um, and I was really inspired by Ichiro. Um, you know, a lot of people credit his him lasting until he was like 44, 45 with um, he was a his big stretching stretcher. Stretching routine, yeah. Big stretcher. And so, yeah, I've watching him growing up. I got, you know, stretching feels good. Like, I, I really enjoy how it makes me feel. So it, there's a nice feedback loop there. Like it feels good to actually do it. And then I spend a lot of time, yeah, like doing core, like blended stretching with core work as mm-hmm. I go. So like really kind of tightening my back and my, my abdominals uh, because really like your power in any sport starts with your core. And you hear that, Vinny? Core. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that's something that I wish I had, uh, you know, I was an undersized running back in uh, peewee football, but like guys would bounce off me because I was doing 200 sit-ups a night. And um, I've, I try to take that to running too, where like the stronger your core, the better your stride holds up late into a race. And ultimately the guy who's working less hard is able to manage their pain and the suffering they're feeling that much better. It's like there's a huge psychological boost to knowing like I've got the best core at the start line here. Do you get endorphins from pain? Uh, I'm not sure at a physiological level. I know at a psychological level, when I when I enter what I call like the pain train, you uh, on aboard, <laughs> all aboard. You, you feel a there. There is a surge, and you realize like this is very real, and like this is. I am 100% present right now. It's unavoidable. I'm feeling this. There's no other place I could possibly be. I'm feeling it. So that um, that is 
yeah, maybe that's endorphins, maybe that's serotonin, uh, but it's certainly a, a grounding, anchoring effect. Like I am all here right now, and I want to to push and push and push till I reach that finish line, so I can you know climb off this train because it, it hurts. In ultra marathon, how do you take a bathroom break? You um, generally are advised. So if, if you just got to pee, no problem. You step off the trail. Um, if if you've got more business to attend to, hopefully you've brought some tissues in your. Uh, usually you run with a rucksack or like a like a fanny pack or something. Some people do that, and uh, it's best price to have like a t- little like Kleenex or tissue with you as you go. Um, luckily, that's a that's not an every race occurrence, but when it happens, it's nice to be prepared. So, so it doesn't really a bowel movement doesn't always happen during during a race. No, of 15 hours. No, and there there are so like really long like I've done like a, a 200 kilometer run. They, they'd have like English for, man English. Oh, pardon me, 130 <laughs> yeah 135 miles I think it is. Um, yeah 130 thereabouts. Um, and it's there they'd have like porta potties at each checkpoint. So like if you had to go to the bathroom, like hopefully you're planning ahead a little bit and you can just jump in a porta potty. Food wise, are the people giving you bars all all day long? So yeah, there's two separate uh, sort of styles of racing. There's self supported, where you actually would be responsible for carrying all your food on your back mm-hmm. and just eating as you get hungry. Um, that's a fun way of racing. Um, then there's also like supported, which is there are checkpoints which will have like the typical like medical professional, the 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 individual that has like the water, and then yeah like orange slices, brownies. Maybe even some like meat, some nuts, trail mix, all that, um, and then yeah, you'd you'd go feast as you go, and so yeah, two different styles, and you you train differently for for each. So, I'm uh, my favorite um, on like the supported style. It, it generally means there's more feasting because you have a checkpoint every like 15 or 20 miles, and that's typically a lot of very very tough terrain in between those checkpoints. So like you're doing a lot of climbing or like fording a river or something. So you're very hungry and you need more nutrition. To train for that, I would actually you know my coach would say, "Look, I want you to run for 3 hours, then go out to like a brunch, you know, with your friends like a Saturday or Sunday brunch or something. Eat as much as you can and then another 3 hours of running." And so you basically train, like, how does it feel when, like, my belly is, like, full of... Yeah, how does that feel? It, initially, it feels terrible. You have, like, a, a, a stomach ache. You feel like, like oh, I'm, like, burst. I just, I feel very, very uncomfortable. The body is so adaptable psychologically. Again, it's all mindset. After doing this five, six, seven times, it's still not comfortable, but, like, you're, you're conditioned out to it. You know how, like, your stomach is going to feel. You know, uh, you know how, like, the stride will feel. And over time, you become conditioned where, like, this is just sort of a, a normal state. And now that I've done that, you know, 20, 30 times, um, when I race with that now with, like, a full stomach, it's I, – I look over and someone is, like, you know, puking on the side of the trail because, like, they, they haven't trained that. Mm. And I have. And so it's like, well, I – wish they weren't feeling so badly but like this is definitely uh this will amount to a huge psychological edge for me during this race while like they've just lost all those nutrients they can't hold it down i'm comfortably shuffling forward with the nutrients i've now taken in and so you ever been uh, dehydrated and have to have iv fluids at a race i've been very very dehydrated i have so far not had an iv okay. yeah do you do uh cairo or what do you call it the frozen booths or whatever Huh. Or do you oh, like, yeah, the chirotherapy chiro- or something? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, so I haven't. Um, I've heard good things. I, I've done my fair share of ice baths, uh, particularly during college track. I was a, that was a staple. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, and then I do um, a lot of sauna into cold water and then vice versa. Yeah, I hear that's really good for you. It, it feels amazing and it, it kind of just f- sort of toughens you a little bit. Yeah, and yoga? A, a little bit of yoga. Uh, I'm trying to really boost my flexibility. It's something I'm working on. Trust me, bud. <laughs> that That's something that uh, I'm starting to struggle with right now hey. is flexibility. Mm. And, uh, you know, I want to be strong. I have, have want to have good posture and I want to be flexible in my old age because you see the osteoporosis in older people and mm. how they hunch and stuff like that. Um, flexibility is something that I want to carry into my later years if I have any more left. <laughs> um, what's your good. daily routine and, and diet? on a normal day, Monday through Friday look like? Yeah. So I'm, uh, I, I try to eat a lot of protein for me. Plant or meat based? Uh, both. Um, so yeah, I do like, so yeah, I do a lot of eggs. I do a lot of tuna as, as two of the big staples. And then I eat and like a lot of nuts and like trail mix style stuff, mm-hmm. which, um, I think that packs some good protein too. Um, a lot of greens. So I'm, I'm always trying to like fuel up on spinach is my favorite. Cause I can basically throw, if, if I haven't had enough greens in a day, I'll just like throw a bunch of spinach on whatever I'm having mm-hmm. for dinner or even just like literally snack out of the bag. Um, spinach is the best superfood, I think. It's awesome. It, there's just so much good stuff and it, it the flavor is simple and subtle yeah. enough where it goes with almost anything. For sure. So yeah, that that's um, – those are a couple of the core building blocks. Um, I – I'm the first to me. I think I can level up in, in diet. Like I, I'm basically on a mission to replace as many calories as I can because on a lot of days I'm burning five, six, seven thousand calories. And so yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it's a quest to to get enough food kind of down the hatch uh, on a lot of days. So I do um, one of my favorite old man rituals. I drink these little chocolate shakes called Insures, which mm-hmm. are like 350 calories, and I'll end up having at least two or three of those a day, and that's. Um, Basically, after I've had a breakfast and I feel pretty full, it's like, cool, 350 more calories. And that basically helps on the last couple of miles of a run where, like, you've got um, the calories you need to stay energized. And then uh, protein is the building block that helps you to kind of replenish and repair those muscles, which um, you don't think of it like running. It's, oh, but, like, what's really being, like, torn apart? And, like, just your body, like, just from, you know, every one of us is an athlete. And, yeah, no matter what you're doing, like, Protein's a good thing to help repair and replenish, uh, particularly if you're really putting yourself through the ringer. How many bananas do you eat a day? I'm in probably the one a day camp. Um, I don't love, like them. I, I do like them. Um, maybe I should eat more. I, I eat. I tend to eat more bananas when I'm actually racing. So like, yeah, I would think it would, helps with the cramping. It does the potassium. the potassium exactly. So yeah, I'll, I'll eat a banana maybe an hour before I race, and then a third or a quarter banana at like a checkpoint just to kind of keep a potassium buffer as it mm-hmm. go. Um, so yeah, I like, I like the, I like the taste fine. I just, it hasn't, it hasn't been as much of a habit as maybe it should. Right, 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 right. Um, if you were to eat out one last meal on Bainbridge Island, where would you eat? Ooh. Um, so I love Mexican food. Um, and the first Mexican spot that we, f- we like would go to is, is La Bonita. So like I would get the, like the kids Mexican pizza and I'd still order that if I were 12 or under because um, <laughs> it's that good. Um, but, yeah, I would probably grab some Isla Bonita. That's, that's still my jam all these years. Wow. Later. Yeah, old school. Yeah, so. for sure. Hey, um, you're part of this World Marathon Challenge, and I, I want to let people know about this. Awesome. Um, you went to Antarctica, uh-huh. <laughs> South Africa, Perth, 
Australia, Dubai, Emirates, um, Spain, Chile, and Miami. How do you sleep and get to all these places and run seven days straight? Yeah, so this is the same. Who sponsors that? How, I know you're with Brooks, right? Yeah, so you and Warren Buffett. Uh, the World Marathon Challenge is the cr- single craziest thing I've ever done, and it's the logistics behind it are just you know baffling. Any element of logistics are baffling, ranging from how do you actually measure and certify a course in each of these places to how do you ensure um, that there's enough fuel on this jet for each of the legs here. Um, and luckily, oh, did you have a charter? We did. So yeah, very fortunate. We had an incredible organizational team that handled. When you say we, you and multiple runners, yep. or so, so, f- uh, so you're not out there by yourself. Fortunately, not by myself, because I, I, I wouldn't be possible um, uh, just by myself. Yeah, there were 40 of us who pooled together, and we decided, hey, we're going to take this on. Um, t- going into February 2019, only 104 people. 104 people. Let me read this stat. Only 104 people have completed the challenge compared to <laughs> 4,000 climbers who have summited Mount Everest or 500 astronauts who have traveled into space. Greg is one of 104 people to accomplish this task. <laughs> so, Let's give it up. Greg Nance, hey, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Woo. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a crazy thing. And so it's... Um, yeah, there's a ton of logistics, a ton of like operations, and we had a team that did all of that. So I, I have to tip the cap, number one, to um, incredible group. Number two, you, um, it isn't enough time to travel, to rest, to eat, to sleep, to you know, work on your muscles after these runs. So like, you you chronically feel behind, um, uh, and in the sense that runners particularly like, you know, gifted, dedicated runners, they're, they're creatures of habit. Like basically you want the same routine to warm down, to warm up. I have this meal this many hours before a race. I do X, Y, Z rituals going in. So you got to be a little flexible in this situation. You got to be flexible. And here's a fun one. So you run in Antarctica, sub-zero temperatures. It's hard running on ice. It's hard running with big wind. Um, it's hard when the sun is like that low in the sky and it's just – it's frigid like your lips are blue for 26 miles um you, you can hardly feel your fingers for most of that that's difficult you, your lips are blue for 27 miles. you say some incredible things that just <laughs> blow me away that you go through like it's casual as can be so you, yeah it, it's a uh, desert ran too right that's right i, I do sorry to cut you off but no no all good so yeah you you finish you finish this run in antarctica get on the jet um you know there are other runners running out there too and you know, one one poor lady, she's taken a nasty fall on the ice, and it's it's a serious fall. They're actually like literally like she's got a bruise from her hip up through her ribs, and it's like black because like you fall on the ice just wrong, it, it'll mess you up. Um, people are taking some damage. Well, buckle up because we're the, the the plane is taking off. We're heading to, to Cape Town, South Africa, and we're going to be running nine hours from right now. Whoa. So we're, we're literally you – know, we've just run a marathon. We're all tired and we're shivering and trying to warm up as we go. There's another marathon. But this one's not sub-zero. This one's triple-digit heat and the sun is going to be broiling. And just you know, all of us are dehydrated. You've just run a marathon in the driest place on the planet. you got to you know, refuel and you've got to replenish. Yeah, and you got to rest and stretch. Got to sleep. And you're not, there's no way you're getting eight hours of sleep because the flight's going to be touched down in Cape Town within you know six hours. And so you, um, 
you got to be flexible. And it goes back to mindset where, um, especially when things aren't clicking the way you'd like, like I ran really well in Antarctica, I felt great about it, but the body didn't feel quite right. Like my, you know, my stomach was kind of gurgling. I felt just like a little off. And then I wake up on the flight to Cape Town and literally in cold sweats where it's like, whoa, that's not what I want to be experiencing right now. And try to try to replenish, you know, Gatorade, tea, coffee, water, all things I drink all the time. And yet the body just not cooperating. It's like, look, I can't put fuel. I can't put fuel down. I can't put liquid down. Um, and yet I've got a marathon run right now. And so you've um, in those moments, it's mindset. It's like, look, I've I've run 26 miles before without any liquids at all. I'm just in that mode right now. And is that where I want to be? If I'm honest, absolutely not. That's not where I want to be. I want to be refueled, replenished. I'm not going to be. And I've got two choices. I can, you know, complain about it, get on, you know, get on the ground, cry about it, and then quit. Or you 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 buckle, you unbuckle, you head to the start line, you go run the race. And um, that's that's the attitude. You just got to get rolling. And once you're actually moving, generally things are easier. Uh, in that in that particular case in Cape Town, they they were not. It was uh, I had vertigo from like watching the waves come in. Uh, that's the worst. Yeah, it, it, was, it was very bad. Um, and just totally just beaten down by the sun, um, felt awful. Um, but ultimately like you cover that course a step at a time and that's that's how life is, I think in a lot of ways. And so the World Marathon Challenge was was life in 168 hours um, within the seven marathons. You gonna do it again? I feel like I've got unfinished business, so it won't oh, be- Marshawn Lynch just walked in. Yeah, oh, that's right. Uh, what up, Marshawn? Um, by the way, I love where's that my, man. Where's my Skittles? <laughs> I love I, that man. I'm so excited for Sunday. This is this yeah, is yeah. So, you know, so fired up. I f- I feel like uh, Richard Sherman stole his Skittles, and that's why he came out of retirement. It's true, Richard Sherman. He's coming for you. Yeah, you know, let, let's talk Seahawks. Yes, please. Marshawn, peace mode, unfinished business, unfinished business, coming back this Sunday. It's Football Friday with Greg Nance and Timothy Self. In the house, in Studio 15, in the place Boom. to be. We cannot wait for the Seahawks to bring back the Lynch mob, the Lynch that stole Christmas. Marshawn, <laughs> I can't wait to see you again. Um, what is exciting to me is the energy he's going to bring to a very depleted, injured team yep. at a, a very crucial time. Robert Turbin is still in great shape. Mm. Um, he's also coming... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised though that Homer gets the bulk hey. of the runs and he will look good because he doesn't like to go in the tackles. He he goes around the line. Mm. And right now we're so banged up with the offensive line. Mm. Somebody that could bounce outside as opposed to beast mode that just bashes through. Hey. You know, Homer, I think averaged almost six, six yards a carry in, in college. He was a beast for wow. sure. And wow. he's been patiently waiting as a rookie, you know, as the first five guys fall down. Meanwhile, playing every snap of special, special teams. teams. Yeah, he's a big special teamer. And, you know, he's 21. He is fresh and ready to go. Wow. So I could see Marshawn going in there as pass blocker and uh, Robert Turbin and him switching off, getting um, some, a few carries, but basically being there. One for adrenaline, one for camaraderie, three for knowing the playbook, and four for pass protection. But mm. I'm not expecting him to have 100 yards or go all beast quake. <laughs> um, you have a deal with the Seahawks. You've met uh, Trust and Russ. And uh, tell me about your level of 
fan enthusiasm for this team? Oh, man. So I love the Seahawks. I, I've been away from home for 12 years. and Wow. The 12th man been away for 12 years. <laughs> yeah. And it's... Well, the astrophysics is coming all together. <laughs> the stars are aligning. Yeah, exactly. So it... Uh, yeah, the Seahawks have been a constant in the journey, and it's been a really, really wonderful way to always feel connected back home. And, um, you know, a couple of those years, particularly in the early days of that 12, of those 12 years, um, you know, the team wasn't great, but it always just like felt like a part of home. And yeah, Efren Herrera and Jack Patera and <laughs> Zorn and Largent. Oh, man. Yeah. Kenny Easley. That's right. We, we've had, yeah, it's, it's, an incredible, an incredible group, and there's an incredible community around it. And mm-hmm. even in, you know, the twelves are real, absolutely. And even seven thousand miles away in Shanghai, or my dad, brother, and I were on a vacation. We were in um, Bangkok, Thailand. We catch a game. And there's like twelves there, randomly at this random middle of nowhere bar. So it is a global fan base, and it's it felt really, really special to be a small part of that. Um, and I, I get. So much inspiration. I, I wear a, a backwards Hawks cap uh, each race that I'm doing. And there have been many, many times where like late in a race, I'm f- totally falling apart. Like legs are gone. My mind's in the gutter. I'm out of fuel. And I like take off the hat to like wipe my like forehead. And I like, I like see, I see this, the Hawk looking back at me. Osprey is on your head. And I, I put, I put him back and I, I start jogging again. And it's, um, so yeah, it's the coolest logo in football, isn't it? It's a beautiful logo. It's a piece of art, man. And the fact that that represents our hometown, our team, it's a special deal. Yeah. So, na- I love native art for sure. I do too. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I love the always compete mindset. I love the – Yeah, Pete's tr- a great coach. Treating every every moment as a championship opportunity. I think these are uh, – you can treat those as just like, oh, that's just a silly cliche. Or you can treat that as a life-changing mantra, which it can be. And – it's, it's a mindset of excellence, much it is, like man. what you do. It is. It is. And it's it's super inspiring for me to see the talent. I mean, if you read the reviews on like the pundits before the season for what this team would do, mm-hmm. man, like th- at best people are saying, oh, this is a 500 team. Like this is the Rams and 49ers division. You know, Pete Carroll and Russ are, are consigned to, you know, years past. And that was the review the year before and the year before. And yet every year we're – we're proving them wrong and it's it's mm-hmm. hard it's hustle it's a team of underdogs that play with so much energy they play with they play for each other and yes we're banged up and i think pete is a he's he's, he's a, a maestro he he knows we need a spark and the fact that he has stayed on those terms with marshawn lynch over these years man that that's how many franchises could lure the former star out of retirement going to week 17 against your arch rival playing for the division championship that's incredible mm-hmm. um, that that is testament to the kind of man and leader Pete Carroll is and testament also to to Marshawn i mean he left if we remembered into 2015 there you know there's some drama man there's a middle finger up there's uh, you know, I think both sides felt a little raw about how the previous season and a half had gone. And that shows his maturity too, like being able to grow and learn and develop mm-hmm. from that. And it shows, you know, him and Pete both, they're, uh, they're masters of their craft. And the fact that we're getting this reunion, even if Marshawn doesn't touch the ball, as long as he's introduced, he's going to get the place crazy. Right. And he's gonna, I already know that he's gotten that locker room fired up. And I'd, you know, I'm just so stoked for him. And he seemed like just a great human being in addition to just an incredible competitor and a great running back. 
Yeah, we've we've uh, talked to Seahawks here twice this year. Um, John Comerford just finished a documentary on on Marshawn, and uh, he came in and talked about it. And he talked about well, the whole movie is like seven second clips of his whole whole life mm. that have been pieced together, like over five hundred clips that kind of tell the story of who he was from a child. And he always had what this film puts out very eloquently is the power of silence. Mm. You know, just his mindset was, I ain't talking about it, bro. I'm showing you. Wow, yeah. (laughs) And there was times where there was video of him in the high school um, locker room with his team, and the coach was like, speak, speak. And he just gave him the blank stare Mm -hmm. and then took in everything. Mm. You know, he's a very unique individual. There's rumors that, you know, he lived off his signing bonus for a long time. Um, but he was very much into the investment and the economics of the business and branding himself into Beast Mode. But Beast Mode wasn't from that uh, massive run against the Saints. He was Beast Mode when he was a little kid. Isn't that amazing? That was his mindset. That was his mantra that he brought to it. And we we did it. You know, Ian Ritchie, who um, does full-time fantasy sports he, and uh, works with Sports Illustrated, number one fantasy football player in the world. We did it with Johnny Evison, the author I was telling you about before we got on air. We did a, he, he goes up to squim for the weekend in a cabin, writes all weekend until the Seahawks game starts. And then he starts drinking and screaming at the TV and we text back and forth and stuff. But uh, I think all three of us had higher expectations than most of the pundits. You know, I said 13 and three because I was a little off my rocker, but it was surprisingly close to that. Yep. But uh, we started dissecting it over two hours and thought there's a lot of depth and there's not that chip on the shoulder anymore. It's it's chemistry, team chemistry. Mm. So sometimes I think the lack of talent can be made up if everybody's on the same page, has the same mindset, next man up mentality, and, and a growth mindset. Absolutely. And the way that we've gelled and kind of outperformed – our potential in a lot of ways. I think the way the offensive line was playing to start the year was a demonstration of that. I think the way that a lot of our skills guys have dedicated themselves, like DK and Russ, um, getting a lot of time before the season. I mean, that's like paid off so handsomely. Like the mm-hmm. Lockett Russ connection, just amazing. And then our defense, especially with a couple key additions, uh, digs mainly that I'm thinking of, just really glued that together. And again, injuries are tough because we're. Uh, we need to get healthy going into the playoffs here. Yeah, everybody's worried about Diggs, um, but I think Marquise Blair is an incredible player. And, you know, next man up mentality, people like Homer and Marquise Blair are ready to play. Yeah, they're, they're chomping at the bit probably. They are so fast. They're healthy. They're a sure tackler and a sure runner. So Yeah, I love seeing Homer against the uh, the Vikings, that fake punt. Yeah. 25-yard run, wow. And just the balls <laughs> that Pete Carroll has in some situations where it's fourth and long, and then all of a sudden pull a trick play. You know, he should be endorsing Manscaped, not me, because <laughs> he's got the big kahunas. Hey, um, I know you got lots to do. We've had 90 minutes here, so we've put in a soccer match. Awesome. I'm going to let you go. But um, can you give some inspiration to the young kids out there that go to school on Bainbridge Island? Absolutely, man. Um, I think the uh, my message comes down to follow your smile. Um, I've been talking about running. I've been talking about you know some entrepreneurship. Those are things that I love to do. That makes me smile. Um, you as you know, a Bainbridge Islander have so many 
opportunities in front of you. And sometimes it can be, it's tough because you have so many different choices. My hunch is follow your smile, do the thing that you really enjoy doing, commit yourself to it. And something magical is going to happen. You're going to meet like-minded friends who challenge you, who inspire you. You're going to see your natural talent for this activity grow and blossom. That's a great feeling. And before you know it, this hobby can become uh, a real passion for you. And before long, that passion could even become your career um, if you're fortunate. So keep pushing, follow your smile as you go, and live each day to the fullest. We're going to make a shirt about that, Greg. Well, my man, it is a pleasure to finally meet you. We've Absolutely. been talking for a year. It's been great. Um, I hope that we always stay in contact. Um, I'll be looking forward to seeing you in more Seahawk commercials. <laughs> running around and continued success. I wish you all the best. Tim, thank you, man. You've been listening to The Bystander. Be kind. Ralph Rain, take us out with some of that funky, funky music. Yep, it's Ralph Rain. Ralph Rain. For your, for your brain. For your brain. Ralph Rain. Ralph Rain. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Ralph Rain, Ralph Rain. Mm-hmm. Yep. Probably wanted to hurl in shame At their fake eyes like eight eyes They take me as I scream Lord, it's wake me from this dream With a light tear barely gleam And the night you hear the screams And the government fighting dreams No war for peace, no war for me Craziest ladies who watched their babies of iodine Should I am fine Like the print on a prenup Though I felt my life consist of reading the papers with feet up Man, but I ain't tripping He's dreaming. He's Stepping in shit for my neighbor's three pups Hey, watch the flowers But on the ancient you should freed up And your anguish will just freeze up It's on the papers, but it's pre-stuffed in your brain Forget the name, forget the fame Faking as money's exchange I think it's amazing how money can change Will you feel in your heart if you let it And regret it, you're in debt with yourself Shit, man, not even I can measure myself Music is everything, we stuck in the measure of self But By government, like shirts to a belt, shit. I be hovering so the earth could just melt. I'm drunk off love, it spills on my shirt as I belch. Stacked in bottles on a never ending shelf, stacks and models. I won't lie, I got no money, but my gold is in mine, and you can't ever take it from me. Yes, I give it, but you niggas never listen. Just stay a puzzle, and I know that piece is missing. And stay a huddle, and it's at least forfeit inches. So I never forfeit inches, as in giving up. These magazines they listen up about these fake ass rappers who just live it up and never helping their people. All there is to me, help is of evil. I never cover it late. 
white silver spoons in an ivory plate The silver zooms just as reality shakes How will you eat what's given on reality's plates? I see bliss, no matter how reality tastes These feet miss, thinking that they carry they weight I change fatal how my mind gets carried away Time is carried by fate In the ocean regrets I carry by weights What's behind me as I'm floating at the perfect pace Didn't move and now I know I'm in a perfect state Even if by tomorrow in the dirt I lay Selfless, I know the shirts will say Help the hopeless and know this I never search for praise, search for days Where we all will see that the earth will change Seen a homeless man and he said he only searched for change I said we well, ain't so different and it really hurt to say And I ain't tripping